Hi, this is Rick Such from Inside Music Cast. Before we get started with our interview with Russ Kunkel, I wanted to take a moment and let you know about a great opportunity for one of our past guests, Crosby Loggins. Crosby is one of nine featured artists on Rock the Cradle, a new show on MTV that features the sons and daughters of famous musicians. This is a competition similar to American Idol, where the artists are vying for a major recording contract. Crosby has been a great friend to Inside Music Cast, so we wanted to help out by spreading the word about his appearance on Rock the Cradle. Check out MTV's website at mtv.com and look for the Rock the Cradle banner, where you can learn more about the show and cast your vote for Crosby. You can vote as often as you'd like, so keep on clicking. As always, Eddie and I thank you for being a big part of Inside Music Cast. Now on to this week's interview with Russ Kunkel. Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Russ Kunkel. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music. That means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside out. I'm Eddie Cabello. And I'm Rick Such. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage and into the studio and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started. Russ Kunkel is a creative. Yes, he's primarily known as a first-call drummer who made his mark helping artists such as James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Carly Simon, Carole King, and Linda Ronstadt create their personal sounds. But over the span of three decades, Russ has found that his real gift is not only playing drums, but also writing, producing, and participating in the complete creative process of making music. When asked who the most significant people were in starting him on his musical journey, he is quick to mention a list of mentors and teachers that is longer than this introduction. You see, Russ Kunkel doesn't take anything for granted. It's all about being at the right place at the right time. That's all it took to connect Apple Records producer Peter Asher to him. After that meeting, Asher hired him to play on James Taylor's debut album. The rest is history. He's ready to release a new personal project this coming summer that is sure to pique the interest of music lovers everywhere. Inside Music Cast welcomes Russ Kunkel. Hey, Russ, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Good, good, good. You've been in the in the part of the elite circle of session musicians for so many years, and you've been playing on so many hits that it, it really boggles the mind when you look at the discography. Talk to us a little bit about becoming the drummer that people really want to call you or to play on, on their records and to sort of put faith in the guy that puts the feel into their music. That's a very difficult thing to do, but you've you have an awful lot of longevity doing this. How have how have you become, you know, um, full circle, you know, the musician that people still still are calling, people that uh, uh, you have a legacy of working with? Well, well, first of all, the thing that occurs to me to say is that I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I feel that uh, Jim Keltner, uh, yeah. sure. Steve on Helm, Steve Jordan, uh, you know, there's so many other people Absolutely. That, that have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they're playing, you know, for their band or any artist that they're working with. I think the thing that we all have in common is that we listen. We just listen. Mm-hmm. Listen to the song, get a feel from the artist of what they're trying to say. I mean, you know, when you're, you know, when you're working on, when you're, you're only playing a song for 
three and a half minutes or four yeah. minutes, and it's like it's all about what information you get when you're listening to the song, mm-hmm. and that's the, and you you react and respond to what you get from the mm-hmm. song, and if you're if you're moved and inspired by it, then you you play accordingly. You know, I I remember you know listening the, for the first time to James Taylor playing Fire and Rain in Peter Asher's living room, uh, you know, in his house, in Peter's house in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And like he- hearing this song, hearing these changes, I've never heard this kind of song structure in my life. Interesting, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, things just, my body just kind of did things that I, I didn't even anticipate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, because uh, I was listening. Right. And that's, I think that's what Steve Jordan does. I think that's what Jim Keltner does. Mm-hmm. I know that's what Lee Von Helm does because not only is he a drummer, but he's a singer and he's a songwriter and he's, he's absolutely my, one of my most favorite people in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not alone. There's a yeah. lot of us that do that. Absolutely. Sure. There's, uh, there's an incredible... I feel honored to be part of, of a group that maybe does that. So. Yeah. And there's so many drummers that have just acquired such longevity of the, the career that, you know, uh, they're they're playing as sharp as they are, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And are there, is there any certain trick? I mean, I, I know you just discussed about listening to the music and becoming the music and getting the feel. But to stay sharp, what is there a certain technique, things that, that you do really to, 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 uh, to, to be sharp? Uh, for instance, Robbie, Robbie Buchanan, who's a keyboardist, uh, uh, you, you've probably heard of him. And, you know, he tells us these days that even as a keyboardist, you know, he still practices. He takes lessons from his classical teacher, whatever. So that's his thing. What do you do to, to keep sharp and pointed? Well, I guess the question would be to keep sharp at what? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're talking about listening, uh, and, and being able to uh, respond in kind to whatever you play on your instrument. I mean, I guess there's there's nothing, you know, nothing you could do other than to make sure you continue to listen to music. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I I do uh, exercises in my studio. Mm-hmm. When when I do uh, sessions for for a film, I just I just did a bunch of work for a for a Disney musical. They're doing a musical for Toy Story. Oh, cool! And I just worked on all the pre-record stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always a certain amount of trepidation when you go into a studio with other musicians and they're going to put all this music in front of you to play. Yeah. And reading music for drums is easier than anything else, I mean, any other kind of melodic instrument. It, it's still, you know, there's there's a lot of people there in the studio and you're trying to get, you know, there's like a, a stack of like 87 cues that you want to get done in a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And you really need to kind of get through them and there's all, there's always a certain amount of trepidation in doing it, but somehow it always comes back to me. You know, you you start this, your your eyes start rolling through those notes, and you're able to do it. And there, and if you make a mistake, you go, "Hey, excuse me, I fucked up." You know, let's mm-hmm. do that one more time, and you do it again. But uh, you know, I, I try to stay on top of that, and I have a few books that I when I when I have the time to sit down and read and and just just read through, you know, a different rudiments and different charts. You know that uh, that call for sight reading it, it helps, but that's not my main thing. I'm not that guy. If you want to talk to somebody that does that, talk to John Robinson or something. I know. <laughs> you know, like, what what I do is something totally different. You know, I'm, I'm not just a drummer. I'm a producer and a songwriter, and I, I've kind of infused myself and thrown myself into the whole idea of art in song. Yeah, whether it be producing 
well, you know, the records I produced with Jimmy Buffett or Carly Simon or James Taylor or mm-hmm. different people, but also in writing, you know, and, and it's all a, that's all a part of it for me. And, yeah. uh, and I've ne- I, I, I don't try to neglect any aspect of it uh, because I am a drummer, but uh, but I look at all different parts of it. So yeah. mm-hmm. to answer your question about what do I do to stay sharp. Um, I think what I do to stay sharp is that I never, ever, ever take for granted anything that I do. I assume that there's something that I can do on this session that I've never done before, Mm -hmm. and it'll make what I'm doing different. That's a great answer. Hey, you know, you were you were born in Pittsburgh, and you eventually moved to uh, Southern California, I guess, in around the early '60s. And what was it that eventually brought you to Southern California? Well, it's actually not a very uh, very happy story. My father passed away when I was nine. Okay. And uh, I moved to Southern California uh, with my mother mm-hmm. to live with my sister, and it was actually uh, a great thing because I grew up in Long Beach. Went to school there, went to high school there, went to Long Beach Poly, and uh, was very close to uh, the incredible music scene happening mm-hmm. in Los Angeles in the 60s. <laughs> right. I graduated in 1966, and uh, during my senior year, and up until 1970, I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. And, mm-hmm. then, and if, you, you know, if you're a historian, you can imagine what happened during that period. Absolutely. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, you know, this the move ended up being, you know, extremely important in terms of being in the right place at the right time for your career, wouldn't you say? Well, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. But I got to see, I got to see bands. I, I got to see so many great things mm-hmm. just by being here. Mm-hmm. You know, so. How and, and when did did drums become a part of your life? I mean, were your were your parents or someone close to you an influence on you musically, or did it come from someplace else? No, it definitely. Uh, my my brother, my oldest brother, Gilbert Kunkel, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, a drummer. And uh, when I, when I grew up in a household with a band practicing in it <laughs> and, in, in Pennsylvania. And uh-huh. I think the instrumentation was drums, uh, drums, uh, accordion, saxophone, and maybe banjo. And they played some polka music and all kinds of wild stuff. But, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I grew up with their music being played in the house. So, mm-hmm. my, you know, my brother, uh, you know, sat me on his knee and put the sticks in my hand and showed me how to yeah. start playing rudiments on the snare drum. And I owe mm-hmm. everything, everything that I've ever done to him, uh, you know, for, for, for starting me out in that way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Thank you, Gilbert. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he's, he's passed on, and uh, you know he's my big bubba, and yeah. I love him with all my heart. That's cool. Well, that's great. That's really neat. You know, I guess as, as as time progressed, and and you were you were learning drums, you eventually formed a band called uh, Was it Things to Come? I didn't form the band. You I was part it? of a band called Things to Come. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I, I guess you guys uh, became, I, I think it was the house band at the Whiskey A Go Go in, in yeah, LA. Yeah, we played there for 19 weeks in a row. I mean, you had to you had to open for some pretty amazing artists, you know, being at, you know at that time. I think what Cream and the Birds were a couple that you opened Andy up for. The Birds, Gene Clark, uh-huh. the Hollies, Electric Flag, REO Speedwagon. <laughs> and do you know who that was? REO Speedwagon. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of other great bands. Yeah. There you go. That's cool. Well, I mean, that you know, really in itself had had to be. 
an amazing experience. And, and I was curious, what, what did you take from those experiences you had during that time? I mean, you must have still been fairly young. The gentleman that was in charge of the whiskey at that particular time was a guy named Mario, mm-hmm. who uh, also uh, runs the Rainbow. I don't know if you were into Rainbow in Los Angeles. No, no. no. Rainbow mm-hmm. Bar and Grill. But Mario and Elmer Valentine ran the whiskey. And Mario was like our father. Mm-hmm. And because we got the gig of being the opening house band uh, for the whiskey at that point in time, the whiskey had just changed from all the Motown acts. And, and, and Trini Lopez and Johnny Rivers, they went through that whole phase, and they were kind of going back to rock. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, kind of entered in on this particular scene. And so they needed an opening act to kind of warm up the crowd for every, you know, big act, you know, a big band that they had to come in there. And so we, we fortunately got the gig. Cool. But Mario was like our father, and he said, I want all of you little motherfuckers to be in the restaurant and having dinner at 5 o'clock every night. He says, I want to make sure that you're fed so you don't fucking pass out the paper. Like, and I, so I said, so Mario, we have to pay for that. He goes, no, I'm going to pay for that. He says, but you're going to pay for it later. <laughs> and he was, like, he, was, he was like our father. And he's still there. I go see him. I go see him at the Rainbow. I mean, he's one of the most amazing people in the world. He's, he's like one of the icons of, of the music business that people don't really talk about very much. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, he's Almost. an amazing human being. He took care of us, and he nurtured us. Uh, through all of the, uh, if you can imagine being 19 years old, living on the Sunset. We lived up the street at the place called the Sunset Doheny Motel, uh-huh. which is not there anymore, but there's a big, empty, vacant spot there. And he took care of us. He made sure that uh, that we didn't get in any trouble and that we were there. The most, the most important thing is that we were there every night at 6 o'clock to be able to do our show. Yeah. <laughs> Dinner at 5. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm telling you, you know, you had, you had, if you if you weren't there to eat, you got in trouble. You know? yeah. Mario carried a pair of pliers in his back pocket. He didn't carry a gun or anything. Because if he, if he took if he took the pliers and took somebody by the ear, you think they would follow him out the door? Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I have an uncle. You know. <laughs> oh jeez. It's and so it's just like some of my experiences in my early days there and in, in, in here in Southern California are amazing. And these people are still around, and they're and they're still as great as they ever were. In the, and it's all about the music. Mm-hmm. And all about supporting artistic endeavors and with people, and that's what that's what Mario is about. He and he still does it at the Rainbow. He's he's one of the most amazing people I've ever known in my life. Well, that, that's great to hear because so much of uh, you know we'll dive into this a little bit later, but so much of the, you know the music business has changed so much. It's you know what can you do for me? That sort of attitude, I think. You know, and, it's I mean it, it, we need to get back to what it used to be. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, you know there was so much support there. Yeah. But, but anyway, to answer your question, he and being at the Whiskey during that period of time with the things to come kind of set me up, you know, mm-hmm. to understand about the music scene at that particular point in time. Sure. You know, and uh, and anyway, he was very influential to me. That's neat. Very good. So speaking about other people that would have been influential at the time to you, would, um, eventually Peter Asher from Apple Records, uh, he recruited you to play on uh, James Taylor's debut album. H- how did that meeting happen, and uh, how did you cross paths with Peter on that? 
Well, it's interesting that you should bring that up. Um, a very dear friend of mine, uh, John Stewart, passed away recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Stewart was, uh, you know, one of the Kingston Trio. Mm. Wrote Daydream Believer, a great singer-songwriter. And I was working with John at the time. He was actually one of my, my first big job to work with somebody. And um, I was playing with John and his band. And there was a, 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 a fiddle player in John's band named Chris Darrow. And Chris was a very good friend of Peter Asher's. He had, Chris had traveled to London and had met Peter. And, and I was playing with John at the time. Hmm. And uh, Peter Asher had just left um, London with James Taylor uh, after finishing working at Apple Records. He had signed James to Apple Records. They did one record, and they came to Los Angeles. Peter and James came to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Peter got to L.A., he called Chris Darrow because he knew him. And he said, Chris, um, I, I have this new artist that I just brought from Apple, who's, you know, an artist that I signed, and I'm doing a new record uh, with him with Warner Brothers, uh, and I, I would like, I'm looking for musicians, and I need a drummer. Who could you recommend? And Chris said, well, I'm playing with this drummer, uh, with John Stewart. His name is Russ Kunkel, and he's really good. He's a nice young guy. He's really good. And we're doing a rehearsal tomorrow night at some rehearsal studio down in L.A. If you want to come see him, you can come see him. And Peter came down and watched the rehearsal and, uh, and uh, g- gave me his phone number. He said, I'm going to do some rehearsals at my house with James for a new album. Will you come and play? And I said, yeah. And that was, that was it. Really? Wow. That was the beginning of it. You know, I, 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 showed, I showed up at uh, Peter's house uh, um, on Larchmont Avenue uh, and uh, rehearsed with James and Carol King, actually, yeah. at the time, and, uh, and, and, and played through some songs. And what's interesting about that particular point in time is that one of the songs he played was Fire and Rain, and I'm sitting in Peter Asher's living room. Peter had just, just rented the house. There was no furniture in it. And, and the living room was completely bare except for a piano. And I set my drums up next to the piano, and James, James is sitting on a chair playing acoustic guitar. And so, you know, I have a set of sticks and a set of brushes, and I go, well, I can't play sticks because I'm going to drown him out. <laughs> yeah. So I picked up the brushes, and he starts playing fine rain. Mm-hmm. So I just started playing as I would play with sticks mm-hmm. or with brushes. And when we went into the studio, you know, it was like I thought maybe I would just change the sticks. And Peter said, no, you know, play the brushes like you played in the rehearsal. Interesting. So that's how that all came about. That's but, you know, cool. the, the, I owe so much to Peter Asher. I mean, not only did the, the, the whole, my whole career with James Taylor stem from him yeah. hiring me, but, you know, uh, you know, because of Peter, I worked with Linda Ronstadt. I worked with so many other artists. Sure. Because of Peter, and he still is one of my dearest friends. And, uh, you know, uh, we work on many, many projects together, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even now on various different things. So Yeah, but from that experience of working with JT's first album, obviously, you were introduced to some lifelong friends. I mean, gee whiz, Danny Korchmer, uh, uh, Carol King, Lee Sklar, others, and... You know, after working with all these amazing, <laughs> amazing talents, did you ever have the inclination that this was really a special family of, of, of musicians that you had landed on? Well, I, I, I know it now more than ever. Yeah, yeah, right. I don't know if, uh, you know, being 20 years old and knowing 
uh, you know, right. in the middle of a, a, a firestorm. You know, when, when I saw Sweet Baby James go to number one, it was kind of like, yeah. oh, my God. Oh, my God, what is this? Yeah, what did we really accomplish? You know, uh, you know but I know it now more than ever. I mean, mm-hmm. Lee Sklar is one of my dearest friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're in contact constantly. You know, mm-hmm. we, we stay in touch, and we try to work on as many projects together as we can. Yeah, he's amazing. He's such a great guy. You know, Peter, you know, these are some of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we support each other in everything that we do. Yeah. So. That's neat. Well, I love the term that I read, and that sort of describes you and your "quote unquote" partners in rhythm. That's Lee, Cooch, and Craig. And uh, obviously, I'm talking about uh, going back a little bit to the group called the Section. It was a, that was a lot of fun. That was our kind of challenge into fusion music. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did that materialize, and whose idea led this, and uh, was it a compilation? How was the what was happening with your collaboration there? Well, actually, I, actually, we were kind of on the cutting edge of a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we did a tour with the Mahavishnu Orchestra in Canada, uh, which was really great because mm-hmm. they kind of met, uh, you know, John McLaughlin, Billy Cobham, Rick Laird, and mm-hmm. you know Jerry Goodman. They all kind of mentored us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, sure. but, you know, what the Mahavishnu Orchestra did oh, yeah. in those beginning days mm-hmm. kind of set the tone for you know that kind of that that kind of uh, sure jazz fusion but you know we we did it for three albums and you know like any band you know you 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 do what you can do for as long as you can do it and then people have other interests and they go on to do other things yeah uh but you know what we did was really i think remarkable and it it it, uh i mean i get so many emails from people they go where can i get a cd copy of this album oh yeah you know there's not a lot of it around but fortunately uh, there's going to be something coming out in the future. I, really? Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a live show that we did opening up for James Taylor at the, uh, I think, in, um, at the Anaheim Convention Center. Okay. That was recorded and, and filmed by Stanley Dorfman. Wow. Um, that I'm going to be putting together as a DVD for all those section fans out there. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. That's neat. <laughs> I mean... I think you answered the question a second ago, but are those recordings out of print? I mean, you can't get them anymore? You can if you really, I, I guess if you really dig deep, you can get them. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I think I think once, um, I'm, you know, something new comes out, all the other stuff will come out to, to follow. Sure. So. Yeah. That's excellent. Well, you definitely had uh, some interesting musicians on those three albums. I mean, who would have expected, you know, at that time, you know, David Sanborn, Michael Brecker. Yeah, exactly. Chuck Finley, you know. Yeah. Uh, even JT, I believe. I mean, yeah, he did. He sang on the song called Bad Shoes. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> well, you know, we, we talked about Lee Sklar a second ago, and, and, you know, we've had the chance to, to talk with him a few times on, on the show here, Inside Music Cast, and you two, you know, you guys really had the market, I guess you could say, cornered for several <laughs> years, you know. You know, of course, your signature sound with Lee was great on James Taylor recordings, and you two really you know, help solidify James' sound. And, you know, that type of partnership just, you know, really, I, I mean, sure it happens, but it, that sort of thing you guys had really doesn't happen as often as, as it did. And, you know, talk to us a little bit about that relationship with Lee. Yeah. What can you say about Lee Scar? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is, there is, there's no one on the planet that can possibly compare to him. Mm-hmm. He is uh, the most loving, loyal artistic person that I have known in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not just a bass player. Right. He's an artist mm-hmm. in, the, in, in the true sense of the word. 
he's a sculptor, he's a welder, he's a painter, you know. He, he, there's not anything that, that art, that you can say of, of the word art that he doesn't touch. And uh, every chance that I get to work with him, it's always the same. It's like, it's like walking in and stepping into a comfortable pair of slippers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to know if you've ever written in his, uh, his green monstrous nitro tea bucket. Of course I have. <laughs> I would have guessed that. <laughs> and you only have to do that once. Maybe you won't do it again. Well, he told us, you know, he, uh, a few a few months back, he told us, you know, uh, all he has to do is start that thing and just drives all the neighbors nuts and, and uh, gives it a few revs. Well, the key, the key phrase there is driving the neighbors nuts because that's really what he wants. See, Lee is also cantankerous. Yeah. <laughs> if, he, if, he, if he can actually make people, like, upset, He'll do it. <laughs> Just for the enjoyment of seeing it. <laughs> oh, definitely. He definitely will. That's but funny. you know what? i got to tell you something. He's, he's, he, I just love him more now than ever. You know, we've got to work on lots of... I, I, I worked with him on, the, uh, on, the, on this Disney project for the uh, Toy Story musical. You know, there's a lot of reading to do on these charts. We have a lot of stuff to do in three days. Mm-hmm. We're, it was just he and I in the studio with a lot of pre-recorded tracks. So it was mm-hmm. kind of like, okay, this is Lee's car and Russ Conn call. We're going to you know, have them play all these tracks. And like we were all kind of, we were both kind of, you know, on a dime to yeah. do this. Yeah. And I was just, you know, I was always doing the best I could to get through all of it and do what I could do. And Lee was doing the best he could. And, and, and I mean, there were certain uh, cues that the bass parts that were written out were like really complicated. I mm-hmm. mean, you really had to read them. It was like, you know, and he can do it. Yeah. But it's, it's not the kind of thing like every day you go in and just kind of nail it the first time through. <laughs> right. and, so, and, and there was stuff that I had to do that was like really complicated that, you know, I, I, I did my best, but, you know, when you had to do two or three takes just to do it. Right. But I'll, I'll never forget this. At the end of that first session, we were leaving the parking lot, and we, there's a one-way street behind this studio in Pasadena called the Firehouse. Mm-hmm. And we were both we were next to each other, and he rolled down his window, and he looked at me. And I rolled down my window, on the, and, and, and Lee said to me, he goes, Hey, Russ, I love you. Great reading today. <laughs> it was like, that meant more to me than anything anybody's ever said to me. Uh-huh. You know, the fact that I got through that whole day reading all those drum charts, and he said that to me, knowing that he had to go through the same thing, was like, it meant more to me than anything. Because that's the part, that's the part of my drumming expertise that I feel the least confident about. And he was there to just say, hey. He was just going, great, great. Yeah, what a hug. Yeah. That's cool. Huge hug. But that's how, that's what Lee does. That's how he is, you know. Mm -hmm. But he's also the first person to say, Dude, you really fucked up. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> and Eddie and I have had a chance to hang out with Lee a couple of times. And, you know, the, the few times we've, we've been around him, it's like he's known us for his entire life. You know, he, he just makes you, you know, feel so welcome. And, he, he you know, it's like your best friend. He's totally encompassing. Yeah, he really is. He really is. Leland can walk up to somebody he doesn't even know. And the next thing you know, that's his new best friend. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's very rare quality these days, you know? Well, we all need more of that. Tell me about it. Yeah. Yep. 
Hey, you know, uh, I'm just curious. Obviously, you were immersed in, in James Taylor there for you know a long time. But when did the session work with other artists really start to flow for you? I mean, was it was it happening during your time with James Taylor, or, or, or like during breaks from tours in the studio, or was it sort of after the, the whole James Taylor you know time that you spent with him? Well, I did session work before James Taylor. Oh, you did? Okay. So I did lots. Of, I did other things before James, but but you know, but let me make no mistake. After playing. Uh, you know, with James Taylor and, and being part of the Sweet Baby James album, it definitely increased. Mm-hmm. The sure. Yeah. That. So, I mean, I, the, the actual, the first person that really gave me a break was um, a person that was running ABC Dunhill uh, uh, Music Publishing, Joel Sill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got me into doing these publishing demos for $15 or so. Holy cow. And I kind of cut my chops on, on doing those things in the, in the studio with him. So. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about uh, um, when did you decide to take the leap into producing? Was that a new arena for you? I mean, uh, was the transition, was it a natural thing for you uh, from a session drummer and touring to producing? When, when did you first start tapping in on that? Well, you know, I got to work with a lot <coughs> of great producers over mm-hmm. the years. And, uh, you, know, they, you know, their influence kind of just kind of, you know, wore on you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I had the opportunity to go into the studio and work with artists as a producer, you know, uh, it just kind of came naturally, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I produced six albums with Jimmy Buffett and, you know, albums with Carly Simon, Dan Fogelberg, yeah. you know, lots of different people. And, and uh, uh, you know, I think what I, what I was able to bring to their projects was uh, kind of a... Uh, integration uh, into the musician's part of a, a production and uh, to the song structure. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I'm proud of everything I've done as a producer. Oh, sure. And they've all been very successful, so there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've also written and co-written many songs with some... And that's the other part, too. Yeah. Being able to write with. Well, have you always had a a knack for songwriting, or is this something that also that you developed over time? I've I've always kind of had it. So it was was there in the very beginning, and just you know, just kind of developed it over the years. I've had uh, multiple publishing deals with you know uh, lots of different entities and 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 and, and success in lots of different areas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Over the over the years, you, you you've seen it all when it comes down to. Hardware, drum technology, all the changes, uh, you know, with uh, the digital uh, landscape. And so from the acoustic drums in the 70s to the, you know, to the Simmons and the Lynn drums, the big sets, small sets, how have you sort of ridden the wave of this technology? I, I adopted you? all of it. I embraced all of Did it. Did you really? Of course. Okay. That's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, because, because if you only see yourself as, as a, an acoustic drummer, mm-hmm. you're, you're pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, I, I embraced all of it. I mean, I use. You know, I started using drum programming as soon as it, it was absolutely possible. So you probably yeah. touched the first Lin drum because, you know, because it was because it was it made it made it possible to write without having to sit down and play drums. Yeah, yeah. You know, too. So I I, I used the aspect. I, I adopted all the aspects of all that stuff that everyone else did for the same reasons they did. No one hates drummers. You know, there's not drum machines because people hate drummers. Mm-hmm. There's drum machines because it enables people to write songs without hiring a drummer. Right. I mean, there's going to be lots of dialogue about that. Mm-hmm. You know, but when you're sitting in your bedroom, 
and you have an idea for a song, doesn't it help to have a beat going on? <laughs> it's kind of like exactly. <laughs> you know, so I adopted it from the very beginning, and right. it's, it's been a tool for me. And and if someone wants to hire me to play on something, I guarantee you that I'll do something that a drum machine can't do. So I'm not worried about that. Yeah, cool. You know, continuing on with uh, with with like recent technology, I recently read an article in. Uh, I think it was the March 2008 issue of Electronic Musician magazine mm-hmm. that was written by your son, Nathaniel. And uh, he wrote about a topic that is you know, kind of near and dear to, to my heart because I'm also a, a studio engineer. And, and that's the topic of overly compressed and processed audio. <laughs> you know, and when you compare how music you know, is, is mixed and mastered today you know, as opposed to the way it was done you know, prior to the influx of, of this digital era, you know, there's a stark difference. You know, mixes today have yeah. you know, pretty much the dynamic life squeezed out of them <laughs> for the sake of being loud. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a really well-written article by your son, and he, you know, he's pretty, he's pretty talented in his own right. Well, you know, fortunately for Nathaniel, he was able to uh, grow up uh, once he graduated high school in Southern California, mm-hmm. being mentored by George Massenburg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and um, I only had a small part to do with that. Mm-hmm. Know, I mean, George and Greg Ladani, who owned. And, and, and worked uh, the, uh, the the recording studio that Nathaniel went to work in. Mm-hmm. Both mentored him, and uh, those are two absolutely fine engineers. Oh yeah, some of the yeah. best. Yeah, and and, and and based in totally ensconced in uh, you know great audio, mm-hmm. and he learned from the best. Mm-hmm. Well, he's done quite well. He's worked with some, and also he is completely adapted into uh, the thing about Nathaniel that's great is that he is a chameleon. Uh, in some way, I hope that I'm, poss- I, you know, I'm part of that, you know, to, to be able to adapt to the times. That's neat. Mm-hmm. He, he has been able to adapt to the times and bring what he learned, uh, you know, from working with George and Greg mm-hmm. into what people want nowadays. And uh, and he does that. I mean, he's in the studio right now mixing a, uh, a Clay Aiken. Oh, Clay Aiken. Okay. A Clay Aiken album with uh, uh-huh. with Kipper, who's uh, Sting's uh, musical, musical yeah. director. Right. Right. Okay. And Nathaniel won a Grammy, uh, won, won a, an Emmy for what he what he did with uh, Sting on uh, Sacred Love, the Sacred Love uh, DVD. Okay. He did with Sting, and so he's you know Kipper and he are really good friends, and you know he's. Nate, I mean, listen. As a father, you can you could never be prouder of a son than I am of my son. That's me. I mean, he has he has done amazing things in his career, <laughs> and uh, you know, I am his biggest fan. <laughs> well, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, though. Well, you know, it's all okay. You know? <laughs> it, it, it's all good, and yeah. uh, you know, and I, I just, I, you know, I'm so happy for what he's done. And, and you know, and where he's going because yeah. he's not finished yet. Sure, know? but he's just starting. <laughs> I know, isn't that amazing? You know, and you looking back in in the decades, you know, Nathaniel's just starting, and and you've had a few decades behind you. As you look back at them, as I know, they're all uniquely different. But was any any decade uh, or that that period of of music that you enjoyed uh, specifically that that just stands out a little more than the other, or yes. did you just what, Six, sixty-nine to seventy-nine? Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. That's it. 
Any particular? I mean, it, was it just the style of music and the way music was being produced? No, it's and just made? like what I was. It, it, uh, you're asking me, so I'm just telling you what I got to do with in that mm-hmm. ten year period of time. Right. What I got to do in that ten year period of time. Sure. Amazing, so. <laughs> well, David Page was on, I guess, uh, a while back, and he told us of some of the toughest and most challenging gigs that were. You know, he worked early on. He said, uh, I, he, I recall him saying that Jimmy Seals and Dash Crofts, he mentioned that they were so perfectionist that, you know, they were demanding on everyone. Did you see it that way, too? Because you actually work with uh, Seals and Crofts, too. You know what? I, I really enjoyed working with them. Yeah. Uh, they were perfectionists, but they really didn't, uh, it didn't, it didn't fall on me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think what I was able to do for them, they were, they were, Louis Shelton produced those albums. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. right. Am I correct about that? I think you're right, yeah. I think so. Yeah. And, and Louis Shelton was one of the premier guitar players in, in Los Angeles at the time, who, who kind of goes kind of unmentioned a lot. That's true. I would agree with that. But he and I kind of had some kind of simpatico, and and, and they, I didn't really end up in the wrath of, of Seals and Crofts as maybe David did. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what David, what, what David was doing with them, but, but I think what I, what I was able to do with them kind of uh, they were happy with. You know, well, obviously, the music industry is in an ever-changing state that, you know, is, you know, that especially with the way that uh, people, you know, can access music via the Internet. You know, the labels out there are scrapping for ways to, you know, stay lucrative, and terrestrial radio itself is, you know, it's seeing some pretty rough times. And what are your thoughts about what's been happening in, in the industry over the past, you know, five mm-hmm. years or six mm-hmm. years or so? And, and you know, how are, how are these changes affecting you as a musician? You know, I guess this is probably a good opportune time to kind of bring this up, but I think that the uh, the people in the labels, not not the established labels, but the new labels that are mm-hmm. coming up, mm-hmm. um, the you know the new upstarts and the people that are just kind of making their own labels, have understood that uh, times have changed. Mm-hmm. And you and you really all you really have to do is is promote the artist that you have. Mm-hmm. It's not about it's not about you don't have a big overhead. You don't have to pay right. big people lots of money. Right. And it's all about if you if you can sell ten thousand records and and you've only made made the album for twenty, you can make money. Sure. And I, I, I and I think that 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 whole idea is already ensconced and it's happening as we speak. Two years ago, I decided that I was going to make a record. And uh, it was going to be a record of instrumental, kind of loungy European instrumental versions of some of the great songs that I've had the pleasure to play on. Okay. And over 2006 and 2007, I did it. And it's now finished, and it's going to be coming out this summer Greatly. on Jimmy Buffett's Mailboat label. Very cool. It's called Chateau Beach Rivage, and I'm starting a, a, a kind of a brand called Chateau Beach mm-hmm. by Russ Kunkel, kind of. And uh, I'm very excited about how this came out. Uh, you know, some of the songs that I did were... Fire and Rain, Don't Let Me Be Lonely Tonight, a song I did with Bill Withers called Lovely Day. Oh, yeah, right. Tony Mitchell's Carrie, Carol King's So Far Away. Holy cow. Graham Nash's uh, Just a Song Before I Go. <coughs> mm-hmm. And Jimmy Buffett 
10 years ago, started his own label. And he hired a, a person from uh, that, that worked at MCA under uh, Irving Asoff called Harold Sulman to run his label. So there's one man in one office mm-hmm. uh, in his management company, <laughs> which is HK Management. And Jimmy Buffett has put out multiple albums on this mailboat label, and he makes all the money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like he he did this. He started this ten years ago. Uh-huh. He used right right after Annie DeFranco. Oh yeah, he started doing this. Right. And this is this is where we are now, and this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I hope I'm answering the question, but sure. I'm, no, I think, I'm, yeah. I'm also giving you some new information. Sure. At the same time, this is how it's going to go, and you, you don't have to spend a lot of money to make a record, and you don't need a big advance. All you need to do is believe in your art and the, and the work that you're doing, and you can there there you can go to the Warner Brothers distribution company, which is called ADA, and if you pay them a certain amount of money, they will manufacture, do all the artwork, and put out your record, and they'll just take a part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the world has changed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah definitely. It's not the and, overhead, and much for the better. Mm-hmm. You know, much for the better because because anybody that's out there that has a great piece of art that they want to put out, all they have to do is that there there's places to go where it can come out. And you know what? The whole thing the whole thing is about striking a chord with yeah. the public. I think you're right. Yeah. And if they and you strike that chord as as long as something's in place, it's gonna flow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and if it doesn't strike a chord, then it wasn't meant to happen anyway. You're right. Right. You know, the the just the purchasing options that people, the consumer has these days. I mean, just the advent of you being able to go, for instance, to Barnes and Noble and sit at the wall and with the headphones and check out every single album or whatever you you want to see out there. That I mean, that's not even part of the internet. You could do the same there too. But go ahead and, and sample all. I mean, take a little bite of of uh, whatever you want to listen to, and if you like it, you buy it. Same thing. It, it's it's now access. It's a whole new uh, means of access for the consumer. That's uh, I think. I think you're right. It is. It is a good thing for consumers. And you know what? The, the other important thing is you got to give stuff away. Yeah. You know. I mean, there's the, one of the things that we're going to do is there's, there's going to be a you know a, a cut and a, it's just going to be free. Mm-hmm. Just give it away. Sure. Yeah. If you if this is something that you want, you know this is this we're listen to it if you like it and you want to go on the website. Yeah. You know, whether it's the Chateau Beach website or my website or the Mailboat Records website, you want to get it, you can get the rest of it. Yeah. But here's something for you for free. you got to give stuff away. Right. Give us the date again when the Chateau Project will be launching again there, Russ? It, it, it'll be coming out this summer. This summer, huh? It's Russ Conkle's Chateau Beach. Okay. We well, have to keep in touch with us or we'll email you down the road and... Uh Maybe you can give us an idea when it's going to be out. We'll let everybody know. Absolutely. I'll give you all the information that you That'd want. That would be great. No problem. No problem. Good. And if you want to, I'd be glad to send you guys an advanced copy so you can hear well, Of course, we'd love that. We'd have to do that to preview that <laughs> and make a show of it, you know? Well, hey, Russ, what's coming up for you in 2008 for the rest of this year? What kind of projects do you have uh, lined up? And are, uh, Chateau. Are you, well, yeah, There's of course. a couple of them that I can't talk about. But mm-hmm. the one thing I can talk about is I'm going to be, be on tour with Lyle Lovett. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yeah, it was Lyle this summer, so I'll be doing that. 
doing that. Will Lee be doing that too? He was doing that a couple of years ago, I think. You know what? I I, re- I always hope that Lee will be doing it, but yeah. Lee Lee Sklar and Victor Kraus kind of go back and forth, uh, you know, depending on sure. their availability with Lyle. And, mm-hmm. and either way, I'm absolutely happy because yeah. Victor is an amazing player. And playing with Lee is like just you know, like I said, it's kind of like slipping into an old pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Lee and I play. I mean, Lee, Lee and I are like it's 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 uncanny, like how we play together. Right. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know the anticipation of what one or the other is going to do is totally sick. I, you guys are well, brothers we'll, at heart. You know, we'll, we'll definitely look for. It. I'm a big Lyle Lovett fan, and I like if he comes through town, I always check him out. So uh, I'll be sure. The to worst know. town for you? We're in <laughs> Indianapolis. Great. Well, I think we're going to be there. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, hey, Russ, thank you again. Listen, thank, thank you so much for wanting to do this interview. I really appreciate it. Well, well. I think it's going to be a great show, and it's going to be it's much anticipated by our audience. So, anyway, we'll uh, yeah, keep we've had, we've actually We've had a lot of requests from people oh, uh, yeah. to, to get you on the show, so this was great. We'll keep in touch, okay? All right, you guys. Thanks. All right, take care. Thanks, Lon. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Russ Kunkel for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. <laughs>